0: Welcome to our Kessler Foundation Research Recruitment Roundtable, and extended Fast Takes episode. My name is Jessica Ganga, Communications and Digital Media Coordinator at the Foundation, and I'll be hosting the discussion where our panel will talk about research recruitment here at Kessler Foundation. Ever wonder what it's like to participate in a research study? Do you know what the process is like to be a participant? Those questions and more will be answered today. Before we get started, I'd love to introduce our panel to you. Today, we have with us Rachel Byrne, Senior Research Coordinator in the Center for Spinal Cord Injury Research and the Center for Outcomes and Assessment Research. Kate Gawork, Research Coordinator in the Center for Mobility and Rehabilitation Engineering Research. Jenny Mesmella, Senior Research Coordinator in the Center for Stroke Rehabilitation. Sam Schmidt, Research Recruitment Manager. And Angela Smith, Senior Research Coordinator in the Center for Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Research. Thank you, ladies, for joining. Um, We're looking forward to hearing your insight about research recruitment here at the foundation. I'd love to start with you, Sam, uh, directing some questions toward you. Could you please give a brief explanation of your role at the foundation? I'm the Research Recruitment Manager. I've been with Kessler
1: Foundation for about five years now. I'm usually the first point of contact when someone is interested in in a research study and wants to enroll. Uh, People either sign up through our website or they can call. I'll typically start by creating a profile for them in our secure database. Um, During this call, I will gather some information about them, some personal information and medical information um, to see which studies they qualify for. So once I create the profile, it goes into our secure database, and then we're we're able to see which studies they're eligible for. I also help um, identify new ways of reaching people that qualify for our studies. So I work with a lot of uh, local community groups and organizations that help people with disabilities and and debilitating diseases um, to help get the word out about our research studies.
0: For our listeners, can you please talk about what research recruitment is at Kessler Foundation for anyone that might not know? So all of our research studies
1: have specific criteria and um, demographics for people they're looking for that qualify for the studies. So um, our, our, our research studies are grant funded and our researchers must adhere to the strict guidelines of who qualifies for the research study. So that might mean somebody who has a brain injury, um, who is between the ages of 18 and 65, um, who is right-handed, for example. Um, So my job is to help
0: identify people that qualify for these studies and help them get enrolled. If somebody would like to participate, what can they expect as they enroll in a study and then begin the participation? Typically, people can find out information about which studies
1: are are enrolling participants by going on our website. Um, You can go to KesslerFoundation.org and click on the join a study button. And then you'll see a listing of all of our um, actively recruiting studies. And you can select a study that you're interested in and then sign the the form on the website. Um, And then I receive an email um, with the contact information. And I'll give you a call, and then I'll create the profile for you in our database, and then we'll see um, if, if you qualify for that study. So if you do qualify, I will um, provide your contact information to somebody on the research team for that study, and they will give you a call, and they'll generally have some study-specific questions for you. Um, and then they'll, if you do qualify, you can work out scheduling directly with them. Um, Participation looks different depending on the type of study. So we have um, what we like to call telestudies, which are research studies that can be completed remotely from home. So these are typically survey or questionnaire studies where um, everything is done either on the computer or over the phone. So it doesn't require any visits to our local offices. Um, These studies tend to be shorter. You can can often complete these studies in one day um, and, and We also have studies that require visits to our offices um, and uh, that that could be a one-day study or an intervention study that requires multiple visits to the office over a period of time. So depending on what the study is, um, it it looks very different. So we have studies that focus on improving cognition. um, So they might be testing out an intervention that improves memory. Um, So you might complete some tests of thinking skills. Um, we also have studies that focus on improving mobility, so regaining um, function um, after an injury. So you may, um, may enroll in a robotic exoskeleton study, and um, will help, uh, which is intended to help you regain fun- function and um, improve your mobility. Uh, we also have studies that focus on improving quality of life after an injury. Um,
0: so it really depends on what study you're enrolling in. It looks very different depending on the study. It sounds like there's a little bit of something for everyone if they would like to join. You mentioned that people can come into the office here at Kessler Foundation for studies. COVID-19 is still happening. There are protocols still in place. What are the protocols at Kessler Foundation that are in place to ensure the safety of participants and the researchers involved in the study? Yes, we take safety very seriously at Kessler Foundation.
1: Um, our offices have actually been open since June of 2020 with lots of safety per, uh, measures in place. Um, we have thermal scanners at both our East Hanover and West Orange location. The thermal scanners will take your temperature um, prior to entering the office. Um, if your temperature is over um, 100.4, we um, you, you will ask you to, to go home and, um, you know, you, you would only be able to enter if, you're te- if you don't have a fever. Um, we are also requiring that everyone wears masks. Um, if the study requires the participant and the researcher work very closely together, uh, we require surgical masks or uh, K95 or KN95 masks for, you know, as an extra safety precaution. Um, we're also continuing to social distance in the office as much as we can, um, and we have HVAC uh, air purifiers throughout the throughout uh, both offices to and sanit- sanitize I'm sorry, sanitation stations as well.
0: Another thing people might want to know about is privacy of their personal information since data is being collected. How does the foundation keep the data and personal info secure? At Kessler Foundation, we take HIPAA
1: very seriously, so we ensure that everybody's information is private and protected. Um, Once someone is enrolled in our participant database, um, they are provided with a unique number to identify them. Um, We use that unique identifier um, in lieu of their name. So instead of using personal information to identify someone, um, we will use the number instead. And only members of our research team have access to our database and everything in our database is tracked. So, um, you know, we we do take it very seriously and we ensure that no information is shared um, and everything is protected.
0: Thank you so much, Sam, for introducing what research recruitment here is at Kessler Foundation. Now I'm gonna direct some questions to our panelists. First question is for everybody. What can an overall day look like for someone who is participating in a study?
2: Angela. I always say that um, similar to what Sam was saying, that every study is very different in terms of what participation might look like. And when we make first make contact with um, somebody who's interested on the phone, we'll go over all of the details of the study, how many visits, the um, you know, amount of time that they might have to be here. What they will be doing, um, and it ranges anywhere from you know a one-day study that might take you know a couple of hours to uh, you know what we call clinical trials, randomized clinical trials, where that's going to involve a lot more visits, where they're going to come in maybe up to 15 to 16 times during the course of the study over say a six to eight-month period of time. Um, so that's the minimum range to the maximum range of what participation might look like. Um, um, every lab is going to be different, too, in terms of the type of um, data that they're collecting and what they're going to have the participants doing. In our lab, I mean, it's uh, it's cognition, uh, primarily, that we're looking at. Uh, so we're going to be doing a lot of tests that are looking at memory learning, uh, how quickly you can um, process information, things of that nature. Thank you so much, Angela. The next
0: question is actually for you as well. For folks who aren't in the world of rehabilitation research, they may picture researchers as people in lab coats that poke and prod at folks, but we know that this is not the case. Can you explain what a research study is like from the perspective of a senior research coordinator?
2: Recruitment is relationship. And that begins, I mean, with Sam definitely as kind of the first point of contact and um, just being empathetic and understanding to their concerns about maybe, uh, you know, participating in a research and what they might be doing and try to allay some of the fears to answer the questions that they um, will not be poked and prodded at, as, yeah. as a, you know, I'm going to use this in, in quotations, as a guinea pig. Um, we are very much committed to the, the mission to improve the lives of people with disabilities here at Kessler Foundation. So uh, I ensure or I um, kind of comfort people when I'm talking to them on the phone that we have their best interests in mind. Um, a lot of people, you know, do participate because they want to give back. To other people mm-hmm. who have the type of disability that they have, whether it might be multiple sclerosis, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, um, so a, a lot of research is also doing that. We're 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 collecting data um, to help you know people who might have these injuries in the future, and it is a give back um, uh, to help you know others who might be in that situation in the future. Sam
1: participating in studies is completely voluntary. And if at any time anyone is uncomfortable with continuing the study, they are allowed to withdraw. Uh, We don't make anyone do anything they're uncomfortable with. Thank you, Sam. Uh, That
0: was a great point to bring up. Kate, the next question is for you. In the center that you work for, I know that there is sometimes robotic equipment or machines used during studies. How are participants made aware of the equipment's function and use before the study?
3: We have a team of, um, depending on if it's like one of the robots that we're using, um, a physical therapist will explain to them how it works, uh, what to expect. They'll be trained on how to use it. Any questions they have will be answered by them. With a lot of our other equipment, we do have biomedical engineers who specialize with this equipment and they'll explain the same thing along with our research assistants So, before anything's done, we explain, you know, we put these markers on. They're like stickers. Um, The cameras we use, uh, basically, like how you make video games or movies now, where it just captures you and turns you into like a little stick figure. So, everything's explained in very simple terms so that everyone can understand exactly what we're going to be asking them to do.
0: And if anybody doesn't want to use a particular machine or robotic equipment, I know that Sam made the point previously that things are voluntary. Are people allowed to? back out? Or do you offer a lot of time for people to ask questions? Everything's explained prior to bringing in the participants
3: of what's going to be expected. Um, If there is a lot of our studies, depending on what equipment we're using, if there is certain equipment that can potentially make a patient uncomfortable, there a lot of the studies do have the option to skip using that piece of equipment. Um, So it does vary. If it's a equipment-specific study, so for example, a Exoskeleton study that we're doing, a robotic exoskeleton study, the person would have to be in that in order to participate. But they do have the option of whether they would like to participate or not. So, like Sam had said, they can choose to, if they get in it, they're com- uncomfortable, they feel like it's not a proper fit for them, they can choose to withdraw. And obviously, if you get something else that comes in that may be appropriate for them, we'll give them a call to come in for that.
0: Thank you, Kate. The next question for everyone is for the centers that use MRIs during some studies this is also something that can be a little intimidating for people, especially children participating in pediatric studies. What are some common misconceptions about MRIs and how do you prepare participants to use them?
2: Angela? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that MRIs use radiation and an MRI does not use radiation. It's using a a magnet to be able to get the images that we need. So there's no radiation involved. We also don't use any contrast in our lab, anyway, in the studies that we are doing. So there's no IV contrast um, that's being given. Um, the effect of repeat MRIs, sometimes some of the studies that we have, they might be doing three MRIs over the course of a six to eight month period of time. Um, so we do say that, you know, the um, Safety of repeat MRIs has, you know, been established. Although, you know, long-term effects are always unknown. We have a consent form that the person will go through with the, um, the researcher who is consenting them into the study, so that they know all of the, you know, potential risks that there might be. But as far as misconceptions, that's probably one of the biggest ones is that there's radiation involved.
0: Thank you. And Sam, would you like to add to that?
1: Yes, we also have a mock scanner for our pediatric patients. That helps kind of familiarize them with the the scanning experience. Um, It's it's a device that is much smaller, but looks very similar to our um, actual scanner or actual MRI scanner. So um, typically for the pediatric MRI studies, we'll have the the parent bring their child in um, to do one visit um, in our mock scanner where they have the chance to, um, to use the mock scanner and kind of get used to what the experience is like, Um, you know, what noise they would expect to hear, what it looks like. Um, And this helps kids feel a lot more comfortable before they go into the the actual MRI scanner.
2: Angela? A lot of the studies that we do that have MRIs, the MRI portion is optional. So the person could participate in the study and um, not do the MRI part of it, um, also, if they do decide to do the MRI and they're in the MRI and they're uncomfortable and they want to be taken out, they can be removed from the scanner at any time. And that would not affect, you know, obviously we wouldn't be able to collect MRI um, data on that particular person um, if they say, hey, you know, this is this is a lot for me to handle at this moment. And, you know, but they would still be able to remain in the study in, in general and do um, neuropsych testing exercise testing whatever else is involved in the study even though they might not be able to complete the MRI portion
0: it's really good to note that at the end of the day the participants you know safety and well-being and what they would like to do is is kept in mind so thank you for bringing that up rachel can you please talk about telestudies here at the foundation and how they work especially for those with sci who would like to participate
4: our studies that involve Phone surveys are a very convenient way for people to participate in our research studies. They can do it from the comfort of their own home, especially if they have concerns about uh, COVID or uh, travel to the foundation. When we enroll participants for a study that's completed over the phone, we do still review the consent process with them and we always ensure that we have uh, another staff member on hand just to make sure we can cover everything and answer uh, everyone's questions. And uh, we do also give the option to break up the session. So particularly for people with spinal cord injury, they might have upper limb impairment. So it's harder for them to hold the phone or set up a headset. So they might want to split up the session over the course of two days. That is another convenience to our telestudies.
0: Are any of the telestudies done via video or is it all on the phone?
4: So most of it is over the phone. Uh, There are some studies that involve group sessions. So based on the design of the study, there might be a group therapy session or more like a support group session or focus group session. And so some studies are designed so that people are joining via uh, Zoom or something similar to that as well.
1: Sam? We do have uh, several studies that do use Zoom and other um, online platforms to do video conferencing. Um, For example, we have a study that's focusing on improving job interview skills in people with TBI and pediatric autism. Um, And this this study uses uh, virtual reality and an online platform to um, for, as, as part of the, the uh, intervention
0: in this study. Thank you, Sam. Would anybody like to add any thoughts about telestudies here at the foundation? Sam? Yes. So one other thing about the
1: telestudies is that it allows us to reach people we wouldn't have been able to reach before. Um, most of our studies used to require visits to our offices and couldn't be completed from home. So you had to live, um, you know, close by West Orange or East Hanover, New Jersey in order to participate. But now we're able to reach people all across the country.
0: Has anybody seen, and anyone can answer this, how the studies has affected their research in terms of, I guess, the point that Sam made, that now you are able to reach a broader, I guess, span of participants? Rachel?
4: Like Sam said, there are a lot more people that we could uh, open our research to. So for example, one of our studies uh, had been completely in-person prior to COVID pandemic, and we adapted during that timeframe and switched over to our virtual sessions using Zoom. And previously, whereas it was hard to enroll people uh, because... You know, the time it took to travel to Kessler, particularly if it was during a rush hour or, you know, other family obligations they have, this now opened it up to them that they they could attend. And we could also recruit people who were living out of state. So we did find that to be, you know, very helpful to our
2: research as well. Angela? A lot of the ways that we do recruit kind of getting the word out about the studies involve social media or uh, a website that the U.S. government runs called clinicaltrials.gov, and um, those are are national. I mean, we can tailor our social media to somewhat of this area, but we would get in the past many inquiries from people who lived outside of our our regional area from clinicaltrials.gov or from a site called Research Match. they were you know really interested in participating they had heard about the study but they couldn't participate because they were you know living too far away so now when we get those inquiries from sites like that we have you know depending on on the studies that, that they're interested in we have that option to offer them and for me I, one of the things I do not like having to do when people are so interested in participating is telling them, no, you know, we don't have anything for you because you live too far away. And now we have that option to be able to give um, people the, the options to do this um, through a telestudy. And I, I love that. Rachel,
4: there's actually two other things I wanted to mention. So uh, I'm Briefly touched upon transportation being an issue. So especially for people in the spinal cord injury community, uh, sometimes they have not gotten back to driving or don't have a vehicle that's been adapted for them. And uh, some of our studies do provide transportation, uh, can set up transportation and reimburse for that, but a lot of studies cannot. So using the telestudies is very helpful for that as well for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to come here. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is we could adjust our hours a little bit better. For example, our data collectors you know, might want to leave for the day a little bit early and head home and complete a later session with a participant from home because they're working and they can only talk to us maybe at seven o'clock. And it definitely opens up more opportunities in that respect as well.
0: Rachel, you actually brought up a good point and touched upon one of my next questions, which is about transportation to the studies. So for the folks that can make it to our offices, is there transportation available to and from the studies? And if so, what are some ways participants can overcome this barrier if this is one? Sam? Just as uh, Rachel
1: mentioned, a a lot of our participants are unable to travel to us because they no longer drive or or don't have a means of transportation. So we do have some different ways of handling this. We offer Uber, Lyft, um, or they can use the compensation from the the research participation to pay for for travel.
0: Thank you. Uh, This next question is for everyone as well. For people, again, that might not know what goes into the research here at Kessler Foundation, can somebody please explain what a healthy control is and how having healthy controls in research is important to the studies? Sam?
1: So healthy controls are used as a comparison group in our studies. So it's basically, healthy control basically means um, somebody who does not have the condition that, that we're studying in that research project. So we may be looking at an intervention to improve cognition or mobility in people with traumatic brain injuries or spinal cord injuries. Our healthy control group would be individuals that don't have a TBI or a spinal cord injury. And they're basically um, enrolled in the study as a comparison to test out
2: the same treatment.
0: Angela, did you want to add to what Sam had to say?
2: A lot of what we do is not um, uh, testing out different medicines, but that's usually the framework that a lot of people understand when you are in, enrolled in a study that involves uh, looking at the effect of a medication. So some people would be getting the medication and some people would be getting a placebo, at, you know, and they don't know, you know, which one it is. So the, the healthy controls are pretty much our placebo group. So there are our comparison group to the other group that we're studying that is getting the treatment and we can look at the difference. Make sure that the, what we're seeing in terms of the effects of the treatment are not just due to say, interaction with the researchers, um, things of that nature, other things that would be outside of the scope of what we're looking at for you know, the effect of the treatment.
0: Thank you, Angela. One thing I wanted to point out is the 64-year-old cap for most studies. Is there a particular reason for that? Why there's an age cap? Kate?
3: So I know for my department specifically, uh, because we do do motor research, which mainly includes walking and balance as all people age, balance starts decreasing. And specifically once you're 65 and over, there's a one and I'm sorry, I'm echoing. let me start over it for that part. Um, (laughs) once you, you are 65 or over, uh, studies have shown that one in three people will have a fall every year. So in order to eliminate an outside effect of balance being an issue, we have an age cutoff. So this way we are only treating people who have balance problems because of an injury, such as a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, and not something that's age related.
5: Jenny. Yes. Uh, for my center stroke, um, the ages that we're tested is from 18 to 100. So for us, it doesn't have any limit on on the age. Rachel?
4: I agree. A lot of our studies don't have an age limit, but some do. And uh, there are a couple reasons for that. So for example, there are various studies that are looking at employment. If It's a study that's looking at employment. They're looking more at a working age group, which tends to cut off around age 65. And uh, another reason could be that as people age, other medical conditions or health conditions could start to arise. So if people have other health issues or are using certain medications, it's harder to see... Any beneficial results or improvements, they're not as great. So, in the end, it looks like there might not be improvement due to the treatment from a study.
0: Thank you, ladies, for clarifying that one point. That was very useful information. Rachel, what are you and other researchers doing to ensure that studies here at the foundation are inclusive and diverse?
4: We do approach our studies to maximize um, inclusivity and sensitivity. We know that some groups of people have uh, historically been disadvantaged when it comes to healthcare access uh, or might not have trust with the medical community or scientific professions. Uh, so what we try to do is build trust with our participants. We use sensitive language in our consent forms and our recruitment procedures. And we also try to involve family members as well. And we also have our staff members participate in cultural competence training when it's available through certain studies. Um, we also have tried to build an inclusive team um, of our uh, staff members who represent different backgrounds and bring different perspectives in regards to race or age, sex or uh, socioeconomic status. One of our largest studies in the Center for Spinal Cord Injury Research enrolls both English and Spanish-speaking participants. So we include consent forms and questionnaires that have been translated into Spanish. We also include study team members who are Spanish-speaking as well, so we can make sure that they can communicate with our Spanish-speaking participants.
0: Thank you. Again, it sounds like the participant's best interest is always kept in mind with each study. Jenny, how would you say your work translates to real world outcomes? And in your opinion, how does it change people's lives?
5: Well, in in my center, we are um, studying um, special neglect, which is a disorder after a stroke. And we are um, testing the KFNAP and KFPAT. The KFNAP is the, the, the assessment that identifies the disorder, and the KF pad is a device that help us to treat the the disorder. So, in this uh, at this point, there are many uh, rehab clinics uh, utilizing this um, device and also identifying the disorder. Could you
0: talk about briefly? I guess what spatial neglect is and how that research is helping folks that may have
5: spatial neglect? Okay, spatial neglect is a disorder after a stroke. It's mostly when someone has a stroke on the right side, they tend to neglect the left space. Everything that is on the left side of the body is neglected. So that's uh, why we use the cave map to identify this disorder in the cave path to treat it. Thank
0: you for clarifying what that was. So I can definitely see that this is really important research that you're doing and why it would be important for people to participate in these types of studies.
5: Yes, it is very important. And the most important is that this has been translated into clinical, which um, gives the opportunity to um the clinicians to treat this disorder. In a, a few years, um, not many clinicians know know about this disorder. So um, my center has been um, implementing this cave nap in pad to um, many different um rehab centers and even though um, this assessment in device is around the world, Sam?
1: Yes, I just wanted to add something about spatial neglect. Um, it's, it's a visual impairment that happens after a stroke that isn't, isn't an issue with the eyes. It's actually an issue with the um, visual processing center in the brain. And it causes people to not be able to see one side of their visual field. So this can impact people in their everyday lives in a number in numerous ways. So, so for example, a man may um, only shave one side of his face and, and not see the other side. Or um, somebody may be eating breakfast and they'll only eat the right side of the plate. Um, so the treatments that Jenny and her team in and, and the stroke center are helping people with, with everyday function. So um, helping them in amazing ways.
2: Angela. One of the most important things for um, translating the research into the clinic is insurance coverage. And a lot of what we do, we're establishing what they call class one evidence that the treatments that we are using or that we're testing work. And unless we have that, um, you know, that evidence to support what we're doing, a lot of insurance companies will not cover cognitive rehabilitation or some other type of rehabilitation. So it's a you know one of the most important things. And a lot of the case managers over in the um, cognitive rehabilitation um, area over at Kessler Institute actually use publications that we've had to send to insurance companies to try to justify to them here, you might say that this treatment isn't working or that cognitive rehabilitation isn't justified for this particular patient here is you know um, a research study that's been done that shows otherwise. Jenny,
0: could you explain why identifying spatial neglect is important using the research done at Kessler Foundation?
5: It is very important for the daily life um, because some of those uh, persons who suffer this stroke, they would like to go back to uh, normal lives that implies driving, um, navigating in the open field. And if the um, special neglect is not treated, then these uh, persons cannot go back to a normal life, be able to drive, be able to navigate, be able to go back to work because they will be neglecting either side of the body, of, of this space of the body. Another barrier may be the length of a study.
0: What is a typical length for most studies? And for those studies that span a longer amount of time, how do you make this a smooth process for participants?
1: Sam? Our research studies vary as far as how long it takes to complete them. Um, We have some studies that can be completed easily from home or completed in one day. Um, And then we have long-term or longitudinal studies that um, require multiple visits or multiple calls um, or, you know, remote sessions over time. So um, the, the quicker studies are a little bit easier to complete. But if um, a study requires multiple visits or the the hours for each session are long, we we do allow participants to break that up. So if a study is typically completed um, in one day and let's say it's four hours, um, if somebody prefers to to split that up into two visits, um, we can usually accommodate that. Um, it it really depends on the study since they are all so different. But we again, you know, we have the participants. Um, you know their best interests in mind and if they're more comfortable doing things a little more slowly that's completely fine and they can take frequent frequent breaks if they need to as well
0: so essentially with some studies it can be tailored to their schedule
1: absolutely um, we we don't necessarily operate in a traditional nine to five um, some of our studies can be completed after hours um, some research assistants are able to accommodate Weekend hours, it, 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 that isn't always the case, but um, it, you know, it, does, it varies from study to study, but we'll, we'll tr- we are as accommodating as, as possible.
5: Jenny? Some of the protocols um, take longer than others. So for us, sometimes the testing process takes one hour to four hours every visit. And the way that we made them uh, feel comfortable is um, providing transportation, uh, offering sometimes um, lunch, and trying to um, make their stay here during the visit uh, very productive.
2: Angela? The longer studies obviously are the ones that you know um, people might have more difficulty, you know, time-wise, committing to. In the um, center that I work in, even if it's in, say, a six to eight month study, the majority of the participation of the visits are going to come maybe in the first six weeks, and then there's going to be a time where there's might be no contact or a couple of phone calls or something like that. And then we'll have the person come back at the very end at that six to eight month period and, and do another visit. So I always explain that when I um, have a participant on the phone, I'm telling them how long the study is. Eight months sounds like a long time to be coming in, you know, the whole time. That's not always the case. And in most cases in our center, that is not the case with our longitudinal studies.
1: I also wanna mention that um, if for any reason a participant can't complete a long-term study and they aren't able to to do all of the visits, um, we still do provide compensation for their time. So typically the compensation is um, delivered on a schedule. So um, you receive, let's say $50 after visit one, Um, an additional $25 after visit two. Um, That's just an example. But so you would, you would receive um, compensation, even if you don't complete the whole study, it just might not be the full amount.
2: The person who enrolls in a study that's longer term, they can withdraw at any time. So just because they are consenting to participate in a six to eight month study, and they find, you know, that they are You know, something happens, um, you know, in their life, something comes along and they can't, you know, continue to commit to that length of time, they are always allowed to withdraw themselves from the study.
0: Thank you, Angela. You both touched upon my next question, which was about compensations. Sam, for people that have listened to this episode and are interested in being part of a study, how can people start that process of participating? So
1: I think the easiest way to get involved is to go to our website. That's KesslerFoundation.org and click on the join a study button. Uh, once you click on that, you'll see a listing of all the different uh, conditions and uh, you know, different types of studies that we have. And you can learn more um, there and we'll have a, a full listing of, of all of our studies that are actively recruiting on our website. So that's the, that's the easiest way to get more information. And then you can uh, complete the join a study form on our website, which is on every study page, and you'll just fill out your information. And then either me or somebody from the recruitment team will reach out to you and we'll help you get enrolled.
0: Thank you, Sam. As a wrap-up question for anybody that would like to answer, why, in your own words, is it important for people to participate in research studies? Kate?
3: For us, because we are doing mobility research, a lot of the technologies that we're using um, can then be introduced into inpatient and outpatient hospitals where they can reach a broader um, population of people. So, with the research we've done, we currently have FDA approval to use these robots for people who had a stroke, who had a traumatic brain injury, who had a spinal cord injury. And these devices can then be used in hospitals, uh, can be billed by insurance to be used with therapists um, and will provide more tools for therapists to use uh, for future patients.
2: Angela? A lot of our participants, though, they're, they're looking for um, to give back to others who are going through similar things. And that brings purpose to what they're doing. They might not gain you know, an exact personal benefit from the study that they're in, but what we're looking at and what we're studying in the long run could bring tremendous benefit to people who are dealing with the same type of disability that they have. And so I hear that so many times from participants that I'm, I'm doing this as, as a give back and to help those who are in the same situation that I am or might be in the same situation that I am. So I think that's a really um, important thing that I've heard from participants as in terms of the importance Of being in a study.
0: Rachel? Yeah, I
4: also think that in order for our research to make an impact, we need to include people who are experiencing certain issues. Uh, You know, people who um, have the most knowledge, for example, with spinal cord injury, they're living the experience of spinal cord injury. So it's important to have our participants give feedback about things that are important to them. Uh, So, you know, our research centers on issues, for example, like navigating the community after finishing their rehabilitation, um, employment, wheelchair problems, managing pain. So a lot of these real world problems. And we can't understand that without actually involving people who are living with with that injury.
0: Thank you, Rachel, and thank you to all our panelists for a thoughtful roundtable and all of the information shared. For those that do have an interest in learning more about research study participation, our panelists and the research currently being conducted at Kessler Foundation, links are in the program notes.
1: Tuned into our podcast series lately... Join our listeners in 90 countries who enjoy learning about the work of Kessler Foundation. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was recorded remotely and was edited and produced by Joan Bank Smith, creative producer
2: for Kessler Foundation.